This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. America's Army Reserve has always risen to meet the challenges of our times, evolving from a nascent corps of doctors and nurses to an organized reserve and later to a strategic resource under federal control, to what it is today, an integral and essential element of the operational army and a force provider to the joint force. Yet its mission remains the same, to provide mission-critical capabilities for the Army and the joint warfighter wherever and whenever they are needed, anywhere on Earth, forging and sustaining a capable, combat-ready, and lethal force, a force of technically highly skilled soldiers, leaders, and units, capable, ready, and lethal. What are the U.S. Army Reserve's strategic priorities? What are the essential components of force readiness? And how does the U.S. Army Reserve support civilian authorities? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of the Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Tanley Kozad. Uh, so, General Lucky, uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Tanley, welcome back. It's always great. Thank you. So, General, could you start off by providing some context for us? Uh, would you tell us more about the history and mission of the U.S. Army Reserve? How does your organization support the overall mission of the U.S. Army and DOD. So I'd say, so let's, so let's, let's start at the beginning. So let's start in 1908. Um, and I've had this conversation with a lot, of, a lot of folks across the nation over the last year or so. But it's kind of interesting. So the, in 1908, uh, the Army Reserve started primarily as a way to expand the medical capability and capacity of the Army in time of war. And, and the theory is very simple. Um, it's essentially a business model. But the theory was we don't need to have full-time cardiothoracic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and, and emergency room technicians all the time at the full capacity that we would need in combat to support land, land uh, warfare operations. And so the, the notion was let's go find places in America where by and large the technical capabilities, the talent that we would need, we will need in the event of a war is essentially being trained and that readiness is being sustained in, in everyday you know, America. So we're talking about Mass General Hospital in Boston or any number of Mayo Clinic. So we go out and we find capability that's already out there, very high state of technical capability and readiness, and then we bring it into the Army as needed, when needed, through the Army Reserve, episodically, for limited periods of time, at a massive cost savings to the taxpayer. So that's, that was the initial going in idea behind developing this capability for the Army. Over the years, 
it's essentially, I won't say it's morphed because I think that there's some applicability to that by analogy today. And I'm happy to talk about that with your listeners as it pertains to cyber, mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, the digital domain of emerging technologies in America. But, but, in, but what, essentially what happened is we started with that basic premise, that basic model, and then it expanded over the years to a place now where you have a very operationally efficacious and engaged Army Reserve across a whole panoply of, of different skills uh, across our, our, our society. That's a great way to segue into the scale of operation for the reserve. How is it organized? What's the contribution? What kind of contribution does it make to the U.S. Army's total force in terms of organized units, total maneuver support, and mobilization-based expansion capacity? Approximately 200,000 soldiers uh, spread across 20 time zones. Mm -hmm. In the main, in what I refer to as units of action. So different types of capabilities that are organized in the units. So it's engineers, civil affairs, signal, medical, which we already touched upon, uh, military police, all aspects of logistics, what we, what we tend to refer to as enablers um, in the military community. So those capabilities, in, in some cases, are only exist in the Army Reserve. In many cases, the preponderance of the total forces set of those skills, if you will, is in the Army Reserve. And then in some cases, we're, we are very much a complementary force to the rest of the Army. So you'll find some military police, for instance, in the Army Reserve, you find some in the National Guard, and you'll find some um, in the active force. The, the, the premise or the, or the where, where we are, to be, I guess, a little more accurate, where we are today is in some cases, there are capabilities that the Army needs very, very quickly to, to be able to surge, to meet a requirement, and the Army Reserve is the place, is the force provider that the Army goes to to get those capabilities. So it's, it's very much an integrated component. From a, from a capabilities perspective of the, of the total army. So, you know, I was wondering when I was doing the research for this, what's the significance of the U.S. Army Reserve status as both a component of the army and a singular command? I would say that it's probably a, a very important technical difference. Um, I don't know from an operational perspective uh, how much it matters to most folks. I tell my own soldiers all the time, I have two responsibilities and two roles. So in one cap- in one, one role, I'm the chief of the Army Reserve. That's the component piece of this. And that aspect of my responsibilities, it's really about policy. It's about um, ensuring that from a, from, a, from a legal perspective, the s- statutory mandates and requirements of the Army Reserve are being supervised, led, shaped uh, by me, by the staff at, at, in the office of the chief of the Army Reserve. In that capacity, I serve uh, directly for the chief staff of the Army and the secretary of the Army as a member of the Army staff. Uh, that's why today, I know your listeners can't see it, but today I wear the Army staff patch. But I also have the responsibilities that you just touched on to, to be the commanding general of the United States Army Reserve Command, which is headquarters in Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina. That's an operational headquarters. Um, it's under the operational control day in and day out of uh, U.S. Army Forces Command. And in that set of responsibilities, it's really uh, – that's where my role as a leader building readiness and units of action that are very capable very quickly for the Army really feeds into the Army's ability to generate capability for the nation. So I think that leads us to the next question, which you touched on a little bit already, is what are your specific duties and responsibilities as Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command? Different set of responsibilities. I, I don't want to say that they're, it's a technical distinction because it's not. Obviously, it has significant uh, – there's a significant legal nuance between the two sets of responsibilities. 
But I would say, you know, from 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 the listener's perspective, and from and frankly, from my own soldier's perspective, uh, it's really the best way I can explain it is it's the responsibility of the chief of the Army Reserve to make sure that the commanding general of the Army Reserve Command has has the has the resources, has whether it's policy, whether it's money, whether it's um, you know relief from certain requirements. Essentially, the the Chief of the Army Reserve is supposed to be the person in Washington who is helping set the commanding general of U.S. Army Reserve Command up for success in terms of building those units from an operational perspective. So the good news is those two guys know each other really well. <laughs> okay. The challenge, the challenge is, since they're the same person, that would be me, the challenge is for them to remember who they are in any given conversation. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's actually relatively easy for me. Um, which may or may not surprise you, it's it's sometimes much more difficult uh, for other for other uh, leaders across the army to sort of understand what, in what role I'm operating because uh, they see one face. Mm-hmm. I recognize I got two different sort of sets of responsibilities, but they're very much mutually supporting and complementary. Mm-hmm. So I task myself on a daily basis to do things. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it gets done. So regarding those. Uh, dual responsibilities, if you will. What are some of your top challenges you face, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Without a doubt, the the biggest challenge that I have as a leader of this team is to drive uh, at the, I won't say strategic level, because that's a little grandiose, but at a very high level, uh, looking over a time horizon, so not, not just today and tomorrow, but out into the future, driving a change in the culture of one of the three components of the Army and, and ensuring that the, that the culture of that component matches and is, is going to support the development of certain capabilities to deal with the emerging threats in the 21st century. To put it a different way, we have spent the last 15, 16 years in the Army, for all the right reasons, and I've, I've, I think I've said this publicly in many different fora, focusing on a certain type of warfare, by and large, in a certain part of the world, and having a relatively predictable sense of when we would need to move the next unit or the next capability into that theater of operations. We are now in an environment where there are competitors, potential competitors, um, on on a global scale that have the ability to challenge our military capabilities, our military power, what we have referred to as overmatch, what we have essentially relied on to be able to operate to some degree of impunity across in certain domains, uh, who now have the ability to challenge us in each and every one of those domains. My view of this, to some extent, candidly, is informed by my my previous assignment as the chief of staff of NORAD, U.S. Northern Command, where I spent four years learning about and watching emerging threats in the world. And so when I came to this job, one of the first things that I seized upon and talked to my soldiers about was we have to change the way we look at ourselves in terms of readiness, in terms of capability, and in terms of the environment which we'll operate, not because you got a new boss, but because the threat has changed over the last 15 years. Very simply, driving the requisite cultural change in an organization is probably the biggest challenge I face. What has been most gratifying for you uh, since you've taken on the current role? This is a fantastic fantastic job in, in, in many respects. But of all of them, I will tell you, I think the most consistently rewarding aspect of my responsibilities is, is meeting with, talking to, um, leading Americans, America's youth, American soldiers who have not only 
taken on the responsibility to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, but are also doing it in the context of maintaining civilian jobs and you know raising and taking care of and being very much engaged in their own families, which ostensibly all soldiers do. But they're, and they're doing it, as I said, across this huge expanse of space. So they're everywhere. They're in every town. You know, we were talking recently about this sort of issue about the, the pervasive uh, scope of where our soldiers are. Somebody told me the other day, there isn't, there, isn't a, there isn't a middle school or high school in America that doesn't have at least one child in it that is somehow directly related to somebody who's serving um, in the United States Army. Now, whether that data point is specifically true or not, what I do know is America's Army Reserve accounts for a lot of that scope mm-hmm. across America because we're not enclaved in bases. We are literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's, it, it has been extraordinarily rewarding and fulfilling for me to feel very much a part of that connection with, with America through, through this team. I, I can't answer how I got here. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, 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 you, you've called me to channel Virgil who once observed that the fates uh, call whom they may and those whom they cannot, they drag. So, I'm, so here I am. Uh, but I, I would tell you, I think the... Uh, uh, my path has been uh, probably a, a little bit unusual. Um, without getting into a whole lot of detail about my own personal history, uh, I was raised in New England, uh, went to the University of Virginia, uh, was not on an RT scholarship, got re- sort of sort of quietly, uh, insidiously recruited into ROTC by one of, one of the buddies on my hall at the, at the University of Virginia my first year there. Um, I won't give you all the details of that, but suffice it to say, I, I sort of progressed from being marginally interested in the military in, in the sense that I had, uh, I come from a family of, of soldiers. My dad served in the Second World War as a, as a sergeant. Uh, my, my grandfather served in the First World War, could never get a pass to the rank of corporal because he kept getting in fights. Um, I don't, don't, don't ask me about that. I, <laughs> clearly, that's, that's none of those genes came my way, but, but he, uh, so, so I came out of that sort of a family culture of service uh, from an Army perspective. But I didn't immediately embrace uh, the notion of going into into the Army. But then over time, uh, I got more and more interested, made a decision uh, that I wanted to serve. I wanted to serve on active duty, took a regular Army commission in the infantry uh, coming out of the University of Virginia, uh, served in Germany, came back to the United States, went to Special Forces training, uh, served in the Special Forces in uh, Fort Devens, Massachusetts. Made a decision I want to go to law school. That's a long and boring story, but I did go to law school. Um, did that in New England. Went back on, applied to go back on active duty after I graduated from law school. Stayed active in the Army Reserve while I was in law school in civil affairs. Went back, went back to uh, active duty in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, in the 2nd Airborne Division. Spent about five and a half years uh, there as a judge advocate. Then decided I really like practicing law and decided that maybe I should stay in that field as opposed to going back to Washington, D.C., not that there's anything wrong with Washington, D.C., <laughs> um, in the JAG Corps. And so then I uh, went into private practice in North Carolina, stayed active in the reserves, eventually was recruited sort of by senior leadership in my reserve uh, uh, reserve unit, the 108th, what was that, in the 108th Training Division, to branch transfer back from the JAG Corps back to infantry, uh, which is harder to do than it may sound. I did that. And and then over over time, just sort of continued to, what I say, keep pounding. Uh, stayed very much engaged, practicing law as well. Uh, a lot of support from my firm in North Carolina, and obviously tremendous amount of support from my family. And then over time, just incrementally 
became more and more involved as I became more senior. And then after 9-11 of 2001, uh, the, the demands on all of us across the entire joint force uh, became you know, that much more pressing. So that really put me in a, in a, in a position from a, from a civilian employment perspective where I sort of had to make a decision. You know, was I going to continue to really stay engaged in supporting the U.S. military as an Army Reserve soldier and put my civilian employment, I won't say at risk, but just make a decision that I was going to live with this tension. Uh, and I made the decision to do it. I had the full support of, of Julie, my wife, and the entire uh, lucky team. And so I sort of went from there to here. So it's a good transition into what makes an effective leader, sir, and perhaps you could illustrate some of the leaders that have influenced you and some of the principles that you uh, espouse. I get asked this a lot, and I don't think I've ever given the same answer twice, so I'm not going to give you some glib thing off of a 3 by 5 card. I spent the other day a couple hours with a bunch of soldiers in training, brand new ROTC cadets out at Fort Knox, and I got asked a couple questions by – these are 19 mm-hmm. – 20-year-old, you know, young adults who've made a decision they want to join the Army while they were in college. They decided they want to get into ROTC. And when I talked about leadership with them, um, I talked about a couple couple different aspects. I talked about uh, selflessness. I talked about technical competency. I talked about tactical proficiency. Those are most military leaders tend to talk in those terms because obviously from a combat perspective, Proficiency, both technically and tactically, become very important. They can be life-saving um, and game-changing capabilities or, or qualities for your for your formations. But I talked about selflessness, um, character, the willingness and the desire to serve others, to put something that's larger than yourself foremost in your calling. Um, as as a in, in my case as a soldier, but I would say this in any position of of, of real leadership. And we ended up having a dialogue um, about what does it mean and. And my point to them was, to some extent, it depends on the scope of your responsibilities because some leaders are maybe extraordinarily good in smaller domains, smaller groups, may have more trouble uh, with larger sets of responsibilities. Part of growing as a leader is the ability to sort of be able to bring the skills that you have been given uh, that you have learned, that you have accumulated over time to the situation in front of you and then applied them as best you can in the environment in which you're operating. Fundamentally, at least in the military domain, and I think this is probably true throughout all environments, leaders uh, that are effective uh, are able to, inside their organizations, inside their, their circle of influence, create an environment of trust. They are perceived by their followers as leaders who are putting the organization's needs, uh, the organization's mission above their own personal self-interest, that they are fair, that they're transparent, that they are going to say what they mean and they're going to mean what they say, that they're going to treat every member of that organization equally with, with dignity, with respect, with a sense of inclusivity, that they are going to embrace the values that I regard as sort of just seminal American values uh, embodied in the Constitution of the United States of America, sort of starting with the Declaration of Independence, and bring that, certainly in the military domain, into the context of an organization that feels that whatever is going to happen, because sometimes really bad things happen in combat, that the leader really is fundamentally committed to the success of that organization and, and embracing the, the value of each and every member of that team contributing to that organization. 
Now, we could talk techniques. We could talk different styles. There's a lot of ways to talk about leadership. But I would just say part of it's just creating a culture of trust. What are the U.S. Army Reserve's strategic priorities? We will ask Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, chief of the U.S. Army Reserve, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can risk management strategies reduce operational risk? How has the U.S. Department of Labor employed risk management strategies to reduce improper payments in its unemployment insurance program? Join Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of the U.S. Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. Also joining us from IBM is Tally Kozad. So, uh, General, um, I'd like to get a sense of your strategic direction for the U.S. Army Reserve. Perhaps you could highlight some of your key priorities for enhancing your foresight and agility to meet the uh, increasing global and complex challenges you face. So let me tell you the sort of the three lanes of, of activity or lines of effort, however you want to characterize it. So we've already touched, touched upon one, which is really readiness to the force. Within the context of readiness, uh, we've identified, depending on what may be required in terms of time and where we would have to potentially go and what the Army would need from us and what the joint warfighter would need from the Army. And when I say warfighter, I'm talking about the combatant commands that would potentially need uh, capabilities. About 18% of uh, our force, that, when I say our force, I'm talking the Army Reserve, needs to be ready to go at a sufficiently high level of, of capability. And when I talk about capability, I'm talking about ability to move, ability to shoot, which is lethality, uh, the ability to, to survive and win on a modern battlefield. Um, so 18%, so plus or minus somewhere between 25, 30,000 soldiers potentially, very quickly. When I say very quickly, I mean less than 90 days. In some cases, significantly less than 90 days. So t to get after that, uh, we've basically designed a construct, and it's Ready Force X. And the reason there's an X there is because it changes depending on the threat and the potential location because some places, some threats require certain capabilities. Other threats wouldn't be addressed with other capabilities. But that basket of formations is, is fairly well-defined, and it is a driver intellectually and practically for a lot of other activities. So when you talk about modernization, which formations get equipped first, where do we put our priority in terms of how we man it with full-time support to make sure it stays at a high level of readiness, where is the equipment supposed to be, how much training do they need in any given year, where do they need to go to. All of the, all of the questions I just posited, they all sort of get answered within the context of, well, who needs to be ready to do what first? So let's focus there because we know this is what's going to happen on a bad day. So that's the, the driver 
from again, it's an intellectual construct, but it but but I could I'm not going to, but I can name by unit who actually falls into this basket, and so that's really helping us from a strategy perspective, almost um, certainly from a con- conceptual perspective, to get at meeting those requirements quickly. So that's that's the readiness piece from an operational perspective. Supporting that, by and large, is the next line of effort, which is what I call all things employers and families. Because we're not going to get ready unless our soldiers are ready. So the, so the fundamental building block of readiness is the individual soldier. So from a reserve component perspective, there's a couple aspects to that. One is I want to make sure that all my soldiers understand our expectation is that we are ready enough to be relevant from a Department of Defense perspective, but we're not so ready that they can't keep good civilian jobs. What we bring, what America's Army Reserve brings to this war-fighting enterprise and capability is a very, very capable set of units that are needed very quickly, but we can bring it to the fight, to the to the environment, whether it's to deter or to actually conduct uh, combat operations or support combat operations. We can do all that at a significant cost savings to the taxpayer. If I'm ready enough to be as good as the full-time force all the time, then I'm probably the full-time force, which is a different financial proposition for the American people. So I try to make sure I'm very clear on what we really bring to this uh, from a strategic perspective. That requires me to engage employers across America and influencers that are capable of helping me influence those employers to make sure the employers of America understand when you share your talent with me, when you're willing to share one of your great employees with the leader of America's Army Reserve, this is a partnership because this is all about us being woven together to, to, as, from a national security perspective to, to support the security fabric of the United States. That's, that's what the American people want and need us to do. So I want to make sure employers understand they're part of this team. And you are doing the right thing. I mean, this is a patriotic thing for you to do in many cases to, to support this, the national security apparatus of the United States by sharing really, really good talent with us. And we have fantastic talent in our reserve. And then the third part of this is the family. So I look at it as a triangle because I've got to make sure that the family's comfortable, that the, the soldier is able to maintain good civilian employment able to spend time with family, doing the things that we expect members of families to do, and at the same time, being ready and able to, to support the war fighting effort of the United States, the future. That goes to leader development. That goes to, to where do we move force structure over time to get in front of demographic shifts in America so that we aren't recruiting or trying to retain soldiers in places where they, people just don't live anymore. I mean, one of, the unique, one of the unique differences between the Army Reserve and the active component is we recruit and we retain soldiers where they live and where they work. We don't have the ability to just pick up the phone, tell somebody, hey, I need 100 more people over here and move them at a permanent change of station order to some other location. That's not how it works. So I have to get the organization to think in front of move of demographics so that the force structure that we need to have in place is there to catch talent when it shows up. Or at least, at the very least, move it to where we know the talent is and is going to stay. Um, which takes us back to 1908. Big part of the future, and this is a this is a role where the uh, America's Army Reserve plays a brings a key capability to the Army and to the Department of Defense, in my opinion. 
we have soldiers right now working, and I'm not going to list a bunch of corporations because I don't want to be, I'll leave somebody out and I'll get in trouble. But, <laughs> but we have soldiers right now who are in their civilian jobs working in very critical positions at a very, very high rate of uh, at level of competency in emerging digital technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence, s- space flight, um, digital optics, uh, high, high, extraordinarily high processing systems in terms of speed. Um, you're talking to an English major from the University of Virginia, so I don't want to get over my ski tips here too much about <laughs> all this cool stuff that's going on out there. But what I do know, and I actually have gotten a little bit more fluent on this than I was when I started, what I do know is uh, the Army Reserve has, I'll just call them sensors. We have, we have soldiers out there working in these fields, whether it's cyber, artificial intelligence, whatever, who are who are essentially able to bring that knowledge and that and that potential capability into the army through the army reserve or in some cases this is this is talent that was trained by the army but once it's once the soldiers finish their statutory service obligation to the army may make three times as much money doing this in the private sector but still wants to remain affiliated with the army so they can as i said just sort of like the docs in 1908 Surge to meet a requirement in the event of a national crisis. So again, the Army Reserve becomes the place where this talent goes and stays to remain a part of the team, but at the same time not be at a financial disadvantage because they're, because of their talent, they're able to command significantly more in the way of salary outside of the Army than inside the Army. So the future is a big part of how I look at my responsibilities uh, to the Army and to the American people. Well, readiness is our first priority, as General Milley has stated, you've stated, several Army leaders have talked about. In this new paradigm of threat, uh, why is the time-tested model of rotational readiness no longer viable? I I don't want to speak for the Army on this, so I want to be very clear. My response to your question is really focused on the Army Reserve. And as the leader of the Army Reserve, I'll just tell you, for us to be able to meet the requirements that I laid out before in terms of timelines to get the capabilities that I talked about in Ready Force X to wherever they need to go to conduct operations or to support operations, for us to be able to do that, I have to be able to see the formations that are the, the best that I have in that particular domain, figure out where I would go to aggregate potential capabilities to make them fully combat capable, and then move them into a theater of operations very quickly. The only way I can do that without constantly rearranging the chairs is to focus on those units that I know if we had to do something today, we're going to go to that formation because it's the best that I have. And so the amount of time it would take to get it a little bit better to go to war, uh, the time it would take to aggregate all the capabilities uh, to make it f- fully mission capable is less than any other formation I would pick. So it doesn't make sense for me to arbitrarily decide, okay, this year you're the person, next year you're the person. And again, remember what I said. I don't have the ability to just order people to go from your formation to his formation. I mean, it's, you know, they may be been, have been recruited into Michael's formation and he may be doing a great job of keeping them happy and he may have the strongest set of capabilities that I have. There's no reason for me to all of a sudden arbitrarily say, okay, now we're going over to formation X and I'm going to move your people because they're not going to leave where they're working, mm-hmm. both from a military perspective or a civilian perspective. Um, so... All I'm really doing is creating 
turmoil and potential challenges for me to make the timeline when I've taken my eye off the ball, which right now is with him. You know, it's it's a different way of looking at readiness. The the and again, the other point, and I think this is important because maybe it clarifies the rotational readiness works okay if you have the time to progressively take a unit and move it from one year to the next year to the next year to go do something you know it's going to have to do. So, for instance, right now I have formations inside the Army Reserve that I know there's a good likelihood they're going to go to Kuwait in 2019 or 2020. I've told them that. They know that. They're preparing for that mission. But the part that I'm concerned about is they also may have to go to some other part of the world in 45 days. So I need to let them know that. Hey, you know, so you think you're going to Kuwait in 19 or 20, and that may happen, but you also may go someplace completely different much, much more quickly. And so I don't want to confuse them by not making sure they understand there's really a, a dual readiness mandate. One, one part of it is, yeah, be ready for this. If, if it comes, you'll go there. But and we think that's probably what will happen unless something changes. But if something changes, the change for you is going to be really brutal really quick because it's going to be 45 days to go someplace else. So that's that's why just rotating around doesn't really make sense for me. It doesn't because it doesn't meet the, 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 the immediate got to go now aspect of our readiness. That's a delicate balance of priorities and managing expectations. Yeah, I think managing expectations is um, a big part of my job. Mm-hmm. And that's well said. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself oftentimes um, telling my own team, I said, hey, look, here's our, our, here's, here's our responsibility under promise over deliver. Don't manage expectations, you know, and then exceed them. But don't, don't say you can do everything, you know, and promise to be all things to all people when it's ultimately, because again, got to be ready enough to be relevant, but not so ready that we can't keep good civilian jobs. So, General, for our audience, just to, to keep on this readiness uh, concept, and could you tell us or identify, say, the three components of readiness, and why are they so critical, each one, and are they interdependent? So, I, there's probably a lot of ways to answer that. I would just answer it in sort of almost doctrinal terms. So, there's a there's a there's a personnel manning component that we've already sort of talked about. That that's that's getting the sufficient number of individually ready soldiers together in the right skills, in the right place, in the right pay grades in terms of rank um, to build a coherent, cohesive unit of action that's that's capable just from a manning perspective. And then there's an equipping perspective of this, and this is a, this is about in some cases, modernization, it's always about sustaining, maintaining the capabilities that you have in terms of weapon systems, in terms of platforms, in terms of mission command systems, all of those things that need to build on the, on the manning component of this to make sure you've got the right equipment, the right kit, in the right place. One of my uh, mantras of, uh, that I've shared with a lot of folks is uh, my view of total force among other things, but my fundamental view of total force is every formation that goes out the door in, a, in the United States Army in the first 17 days or 24 days or 32 days or 35 days, regardless of component, should have the same mobility, the same lethality, the same survivability, and the same netted mission command architecture to be able to fight interoperably on the battlefield and win. So that's the equipping component of this. And then the third one's training. Um, all aspects of training Again, the individual requirements, but but then the real secret sauce is making sure you've built that team to a to a coherent, 
unit of action that has co- cohesion, that is trained together in the context of the modern threat environment is prepared to go to war. So those are, those are three aspects. And as I, as I walk you through that, I think probably the interconnectivity of it's self-evident. How is the U.S. Army using private-public partnerships, or P3s, to improve their readiness? We will ask Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of the Army Reserve, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of the U.S. Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. Also joining us from IBM is Tanley Kozad. So, um, General, I understand the Army Reserve has a private-public partnership P3 office um, that is setting the example for the rest of the DOD. Can you explain how the Army Reserve is using it to improve its readiness? So, I'm going to walk past the veiled compliment that we're leading uh, the Department of Defense in this regard. So th- that may or may not be true. Um, um, I do think it's it's an innovative approach. It wasn't my idea. Uh, started before I got here. Um, I've tried to take it one more step, if you will. It started off as a way to really go back to the, to the employer challenge I talked about earlier, which is partnering to share talent with, with employers across America for a win-win. So we have great talent in the Army Reserve, great talent in America, out there employed in America. And so the, the, the P3O was a, was a way to get after sharing that, messaging it, and developing, if you will, an ongoing partnership with, with uh, industry uh, across the nation and, frankly, uh, in a lot of other parts of the globe. The next step is to not only continue to leverage that as a way to manage um, and, in some cases, really at a very discrete level manage human capital. So think in terms of we have identified certain soldiers that are working in a certain industry. They may be right now in the Army Reserve doing one thing. And I don't want to 
name anything because I don't want to make it sound pejorative, but they may be doing one thing. But the reality is it may not really be optimizing their civilian skills or their civilian job. And some soldiers don't want to do the same thing on a weekend that they're doing during the week. So I appreciate that. I, and I, frankly, I, that's sort of the model I came out of. But some soldiers would really appreciate an opportunity to bring their civilian-acquired capabilities and skills. And I won't use the word weaponize them, although I probably could, but bring them into the Department of Defense from a capabilities perspective through the Army Reserve. That gets back to what we talked about earlier in terms of talent management and and, exp- and making sure we keep an eye on the future as it pertains to how the Army Reserve continues to morph and shift over time. So P3 has given us insight into where those capabilities are, where we should go to look for additional talent, where I should move force structure to capture talent. Um, I've already looked at different pockets across America where there are clearly, I call it digital key terrain, but um, emerging um, markets or emerging uh, centers of gravity from a capabilities perspective in the private sector or the commercial sector. And we've, we're already moving. When I say we're moving talent, we're not. We're not moving people. We're moving the requirement. We're moving the billet so that the talent can fall into that billet. So we're, so we're doing that. And P3O has really helped us see ourselves better in terms of how we would move uh, structure to talent and then leverage that talent for the Department of Defense. We're a long way from done on this journey, but we, but we really have taken it uh, another turn. So I think we're going to shift a little bit to a question about technology. And with the growing capabilities of data, digitalization, and integration with the application of artificial intelligence, for example, cognitive analytics, um, what role do you see for technology as it relates to tracking and improving readiness in the Army Reserve? To some extent, um, you sort of know when you see it. I don't mean mean to dismiss it, but let me give you an example I'm talking about. I was in the, at the National Training Center not too long ago, and I was looking at some, some units from the Army Reserve. And I'll just, I'll just talk about the Army Reserve. Um, there were other units there, but I'll talk about Army Reserve units. What I saw there was units that didn't appreciate the threat environment they were operating in, um, didn't, hadn't brought the right equipment, um, hadn't really understood how the, the threat environment had changed so that they needed to be more ready before they got to that training event. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I looked at that unit statistically through any number of analytical lenses and artificial intelligence and digits and beeps and squeaks and coding, I might have seen a unit that was actually from a personnel manning perspective in a very good state and from an equipping perspective had pretty much the right stuff. They may have just forgotten to bring it. You know, and from a training perspective, was at least in arguably the finest training environment in in the world, which is the National Training Center. But the key is leadership. I'm not saying we won't ever get there. I mean, Elon Musk will disagree with me if I talk about limits to AI. But I just I, there's no substitute for leadership on the ground going out there and saying, "Hey, I've been an infantry officer for 40 years. I know when something doesn't look right." And I'm not sure how much of how much analytics ever get you to that. Now, I'm not being dismissive of technology and all the effort that goes into us grading ourselves and seeing ourselves. Um, so I'm not being dismissive of any of that. I'm just saying there's no substitute for presence and for leadership ultimately assessing the efficacy and capabilities of a formation to actually conduct ground combat operations. And so I just I would be very slow to embrace an answer that didn't involve persistent, 
presence and vigorous leadership on the part of my commanders. General, how do you ensure prompt access to quality mental health care, uh, which is essential for readiness? And, and where I'm going with this is, could you elaborate on your efforts to increase individual resiliency and reduce incidences of uh, suicide and depression? So thanks for the question, and, and hopefully my response will, will actually advance the ball, not just to answer the question, but actually um, continue to get after this persistent challenge for us. I've tried to learn as much as I can about this. Um, I've gone and talked to researchers. I was out at the University of um, Southern California and talked to the folks there in the behavioral sciences uh, departments about research and what we're learning and what we're not learning. And then I try to bring that back to my team to this tribe and talk to the team about, okay, here's what I've learned, and this is what I want you soldiers uh, to understand. Um, and about every six weeks, I go, I'll do a little video shoot, you know, at Fort Bragg and get out and talk about different things, where we are, what's going on. Sometimes it's a safety message. Sometimes it's just a, you know, sort of a, you know, just a check in and let everybody know kind of sort of this is what I'm seeing, this is where we're going, this is where we got to go there. I did, I did one after I came back from um, from my visit out to uh, to USC. I t- talked specifically to the team about suicide, primarily because this is a because we moved into the spring, I, and I I didn't know this candidly, that the springtime and the early summer is is the is this is sort of the most challenging period of the year for a lot of folks. I'd always sort of thought it was holidays, you know, but apparently statistically it's yeah, cold weather, darkness, or people get depressed because, you know, it's Christmas, but they're not having fun, and the people that they love and, and are gone, and, and so there's all kinds of contributing factors. But the statistically, uh, what I've been told and have no reason to doubt it is actually spring, early summer is a real challenge. So I talked to the troops within the context temporal context of, okay, we're moving in this season, be aware of this because I wasn't. And then I talked about the three contributing factors that are fairly well documented in in research. And and again, I don't want to sound too analytical about this, but so one is obviously access to lethal means for self-destruction. So pretty much anybody who's been trained in the U.S. military is probably capable of doing that. Then the next one is really um, a sense of burdensomeness. So, so a sense that you are not only you're not contributing, but you're actually detracting from the team, whether it's family, uh, relationships that you're having in, in the employment context. Um, it could be driven by uh, financial issues, any, any number of stressors that, that make the individual feel like, hey, I'm not, I'm not carrying my weight here. I'm a burden and the world would be better off if I weren't here sort of thing. And then, and then the third aspect is um, a sense of not belonging to a team. So I talked to, to my team about this. I said, hey, look, we have something that most of the people in this world don't have. Two things. I said, and frankly, and I'll go on record again saying it, frankly, a lot of people in our own country don't have it. So one thing we have is we got a mission. We got a mission. And as I said earlier on the show, the mission is to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. We're here to defend the American way of life, the sovereignty of the United States of America as a federal republic. So that's a, if you look at it, that's kind of a big deal. 
I mean, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of people sort of bought into that construct, and I'm sure it's not one of them. So, so part of it is just we got a mission, um, and then the other part of it is, and this is what I tell them: is we have something else that's awesome. We got each other. We got a team. This is a this is a team of two hundred thousand soldiers and all the families and employers that are supporting them, and civilians that are on that are on top of my my my, my soldiers. So we're well over two hundred thousand now across 20 time zones that are all have all ultimately whether they remember it or not until I remind them bought into this same core mission so that's a big deal so part of this is is me as a leader trying to message to the team hey look Take care of each other. Keep an eye on each other. Stay engaged, and don't limit your concern to just your fellow soldiers. I mean, you got there's a lot of other people out there that are counting on us, that America's Army Reserve, to model what right looks like across any number of domains of activity. So, part of this is trying to just, in addition to being sort of insular in my approach to talking to us about us, is say, hey, no, we got this is bigger than us. We we had an opportunity here to change the conversation in America. So we're trying to get after it now. I'm not going to tell you that I got it all figured out. We still have a significant number of suicides in the Army Reserve, and when we look at them, we look for patterns. And frankly, sometimes you can look back and say, probably missed this one, probably should have seen it coming. Other cases, I'll tell you, you, you scratch your head and go, wow, you know, I didn't, there was no, there was no indicator that, that anybody should have picked up on. I'm also guarded about being too hard on indicators we should have seen. Because I think it's we got to be careful to not um, increase the burden on survivors of suicide to feel like somehow they should have or could have done something that they didn't do. I'm very sensitive to that. So, you know, there's another thing. Uh, it's a good transition to other support roles that um, the U.S. Army Reserve pursue. And something about de the defense support of civil authorities. I wanted to touch on that. What does that mission entail? And how has your mission in that space evolved to date? So let me answer the second part first. So the, the, the mission has, space has expanded a little. Well, the mission, the, the requirement hasn't expanded. Our ability to respond to it has expanded, primarily uh, through a change in law that allows the Army Reserve to expand its ability to support uh, very quickly civil authorities as requested uh, by FEMA or some other uh, agency to, to go out there and help and respond to a request for assistance within the legal context of, of the, the national response framework. Um, the bigger part of this is really just simply making sure my commanders understand what we call immediate response authority, which is – and we exercise this fairly routinely. So I'll give you a couple examples. So about a year ago, a uh, big flood in West Virginia and uh, lo local town, small town, the mayor of the town asked uh, Army Reserve soldiers – we, we had an Army Reserve, uh, Reserve Center in this town – asked the soldiers in this company to – would you please help us do sandbags or move some, move some stuff and grab some people and get them out of houses. And so it's basically about saving lives, uh, protecting critical infrastructure and doing it very quickly when there's very little time to react and there's bulldozers sitting right there and trucks and soldiers. Okay, so – you don't need to be a 
weatherman to know which way the wind's blowing. And that's, I got to give credit to Bob Dylan for that. That's not a lucky original. But <laughs> so this is one where, so these kids go. They just, I mean, really, on you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes notice, boom, out the door, they're doing it. Um, so that's immediate response authority. So part of this is making sure the best we can, we see where we have capabilities, and whether it's people or, or the right equipment. Um, and in some cases, we're actually in the process of moving the right equipment to places where they're closer to where we think there may be challenges. Um, sometimes it's flooding. Sometimes it's wildfires. It could be any number of things. We try to sort of, to some extent, to the extent it's consistent with our larger mission, which is being prepared uh, to fight the nation's wars. I want to make sure we're, we're also taking a look at this other mission, which does become very real very quickly on a bad day, which is making sure we have capabilities that are proximate where we can do it to areas where there may be challenges and we can really help. So we posture ourselves in terms of equipping and, and uh, capabilities to, to be proximate to those, to those challenges. I'll give you another example, forest fires. Had some significant fires in Kansas uh, several months ago. And we have uh, CH-47 helicopters uh, just outside of Kansas City in Olathe, Kansas. And uh, we, we dispatched those aircraft very quickly to fly down to the Dodge City part of Kansas to, again, scoop up water in Bambi buckets, drop water on fire, drop water in homes, um, help folks out, et cetera, et cetera. We work very closely with the National Guard. We work very closely with local uh, local authorities. But again, if we're asked to support, we'll, we will very quickly move capability to, to wherever the problem is. I, I don't think that's um, – I don't think – it's certainly not new to our ethos. It's just our our flexibility over time has has increased to the point where I'm more comfortable telling you that any place we need to go, I, there's no legal impediment of the, the, of which I'm aware that precludes us from responding very quickly. Mm, that's great. So, you know, General, uh, as we close today, I, I want to get your advice. Um, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? So I've been a trial lawyer for a long time and. And obviously, been a soldier for a long time, and and um, there are days when you know I I wonder uh, if when I'm done serving in this capacity, if you know we can call it good and move to some place and go fishing and 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 write and reflect and focus more on you know raising the German Shepherd or something like that. And and, and there's a part of me that thinks that that's that's part of what I should do um, as a, as an old guy. Um, Julie's very quick to, to point out that um, that hasn't so far been really the arc of my life. <laughs> so, so I don't. So I don't. So I don't. So that's an ongoing conversation in the Lucky Household. But I encourage anybody and everybody who's willing to listen um, to to be involved, be engaged, um, be a participant in civil society. I talk to my soldiers all the time about intellectual fitness, and I talk a little bit about spiritual fitness in a very, very uh, non religious, uh, preachy sort of way. I just talked to them about being comfortable with their their role in the, in the world and in creation so that we, on a bad day, they remain calm because they have a very high abiding sense of confidence that in the fullness of time, things are going to be okay. So I do talk to them about spiritual uh, fitness. But intellectual fitness, I'm really talking about read, you know, stay engaged. Um, 
and don't and don't just talk past other people. Engage other people. We, we are. And I talked to the War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. We should be uh, modeling the ability to to disagree amicably and civilly and and professionally with other people. And and this is about be, being big enough to. Be challenged and respond, and not. It doesn't have to be a a personal ad hominem attack or response. It doesn't have to be uncivil um, or or crude. It can be very, very measured. Um, and I, I just think that there's a there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for for folks to get involved in. When you say public service. Um, there's so many aspects of that, you know. I'm, you know, the, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of education as one of the strategic enablers for, for, just civil discourse and governance in America. Um, you know, maybe it's because I went to the University of Virginia. You know, and I'm sort of, I'm, 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 I sort of embrace Jefferson in regard that the one of the one of the basic tenets of us governing ourselves is to. Be witting of what the challenges are, what the what the trade offs are, and compromises is appropriate and necessary to advance the common good. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity there, and I think there's a tremendous need for it there. What I remain focused on, and I do talk to soldiers about this, we got to make sure that we are constantly modeling, leading, not in terms of political discussion, not in terms of any particular view on any particular subject, but just in terms of basic professionalism, um, modeling what you know, right looks like in terms of character in America. Um, I, I, I just think that's a, a, a tremendous opportunity. Uh, and as the leader of America's Army Reserve, I feel very much it's a part of my responsibility to the Army um, and to my team to make sure that we're out there messaging to the American people. This is the coolest tribe. This is the coolest tribe in Western civilization. And I want people to want to be a part of this team because it's a great way for them to give back. It's a great way to put others before self. And it's also just a, a great team to hang out with. And so to me, it's all about public service. Well, General, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to come on in and talk to us today. But more importantly, Townley and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, I appreciate, appreciate the opportunity to, 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 to speak with both of you. And uh, I'll just say um, it's, it's been the honor of, of, of my life to lead uh, the coolest team in America. And we'll just keep pounding. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky. Chief of the Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. My co-host today from IBM has been Townley Kozak. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can risk management strategies reduce operational risk? How has the U.S. Department of Labor employed risk management strategies to reduce improper payments in its unemployment insurance program? Join Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professor Justin Bullock, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Risk Management and Reducing Improper Payments, a case study of the U.S. Department of Labor. 
That's next week on the Business of Government Hour at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.